Hi, welcome to the Brown Note. You're with Julian on Radio Northern Beaches on 88.7, 90.3 FM, rmb.org.au for live streaming, mixcloud.com under Julian Brown for old shows or the Brown Note, and the Brown Note on Facebook for links to articles of which there are none because we are in awards season on this show. Every year I round up my favourite movies, albums and tracks of the year through sheer self-indulgence. And I have a lot of fun doing so, if no one else does. This year I've done it slightly differently. I'm going to do um, next week my favourite albums of the year and after that my favourite tracks of the year. And this week I'm going to do my favourite and least favourite movies of the year. And something I haven't done before is look back at all of the found music I have come across this year on the show usually much older artists that I've never even heard of or never played before on this show so I'm going to round up those normally I merge the films and the albums together which is a nightmare but this is still going to be a nightmare it's actually the most convoluted complicated and time constrained show of the year uh, but I actually find it quite my well I'll begin with the uh, three films that missed it Fast 7 uh, was a, an excellent follow on to the two decent, really decent uh, Fast and Furious franchise movies and the last one with Paul Walker in. And they handled everything well. It was just as good as, as six, not really quite as good as five, which remains a high point. But it was a good film and uh, they really do, they've got a, a good run going, which uh, I'm not sure how that's going to continue now that the lead actor is dead. So I, I imagine money will talk in the end. Another one was Black Mass, which was Johnny Depp, taking on the role of James Whitey Bulger and an excellent trio of Benedict Cumberbatch, Joel Egerton and also Johnny Depp in that main role. Absolutely up for an Oscar for that. He was very menacing. Film was a bit flat at times. It wasn't quite there, but I did appreciate how dark it was and it is such an interesting story. And the other one was straight out of Compton, one of the movie events of the years, and now the highest grossing music biopic in history and the highest grossing black film in history as well, uh, meaning that it had a black director and subject matter that involved black actors and black people, basically. Um, but it's, all, it's actually, um, I think it did about seven or eight times what the wildest prediction of what it would do at the box office would be. I think it went way over $200 million at the box office when they initially predicted somewhere in the region of 30. Uh, and it wasn't quite there, but it was still terrific fun and great subject matter as well to look back on. Uh, my 10th best film of the year was an indie horror film. I think it may have been a debut by a director called David Robert Mitchell, and it was called It Follows. Um, it did cross over to some degree of success, but it was a very unusual film. A lot of these teenage or at least um, low-budget horror films that cross over uh, are based around certain premises like the, the violence or you know the poltergeist movie, uh, the paranormal activities movies, or there'll be uh, a, a, a a version of a story that we've heard a million times, like a vampire tale or whatever. It Follows was hugely original, uh, featuring a monster that just gradually got closer and closer to you without you actually ever being able to completely outrun it. And you could get a long, long way away from it, but years later it's still going to be gradually walking towards you. And a lot of people pointed out how symbolic this film was because you could transmit 
the uh, monster following you to another person by having sex with them. So there was a lot of mortality, um, sexually transmitted diseases, but it actually went a lot deeper than that. I thought the teenagers in it had refreshingly adult emotions and the way that they dealt with each other I really liked. But above all, it was the dreamlike, fever dreamlike uh, nature of, of the cinematography and of the soundtrack, which I found very, very um, powerful to watch. It's a, a memorable film, much like um, it was less of a horror or a scary movie than it was of almost a psychological or emotional thriller. Um, Maika Monroe was wonderful as the lead actress in this as well. No one was bad. There wasn't really anything that was wasted in it either. I really enjoyed its originality. So it follows my 10th favourite film of the year. And we'll follow that with uh, the Heart You Percussion Group, another recently... Nice fluting. Flute away. Uh, my number nine film of the year was, like Fast 7, a franchise I only got into very late. Um, I hated the first Mission Impossible movie, and I hated the second even more, an almost unblemished record of terrible American films for Hong Kong director John Woo. But the third one was curiously good. Philip Seymour Hoffman made a fantastic villain, and the story had a lot more grit to it as well. It was a pretty decent stab, and four was excellent. But when they announced that five was going to have Simon Pegg in a much more expanded role, I started to wince as... Although I used to like Simon Pegg, the English ginger actor in um, his early comedies, uh, particularly the sitcom, uh, was it Singles? I can't remember what it's called now. But um, recent years, he's really gone off the boil for me. I found his character in the Mission Impossible franchise incredibly annoying, the one in Star Trek even more annoying. And his films lately have got terrible. The World's End is one of the worst films I've ever seen. And then I was so surprised. Instead of making his character even more madcap and jokey, they actually gave him an emotional core, and he was actually one of the best characters in it. And even though Rogue Nation, the fifth instalment in the Mission Impossible franchise, didn't have the iconic look of 4, where they had things like that Dubai skyscraper, which just looked incredible, and those set pieces that were mind-blowing, it was almost a smaller-feeling film, but the story was better, and it went all the way to the end as well, rather than just having the last half an hour solely based around set pieces. So I think it's actually the best of the entire series. So uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Christopher McQuarrie, and Jeremy Renner's always useless in everything. That's a, a truism that hasn't... I think Einstein came up with that. He hasn't, hasn't been disproven. As is Ving Rams. The only film that he's been in is Pulp Fiction that he hasn't been terrible in as well. But elsewhere, everyone was good. Rebecca Ferguson made an excellent female foil. And uh, surprisingly, Simon Pegg was actually really good. Tom Cruise as well. I've had my ups and downs of him in his recent action movies because he can be a bit... Almost like he's being so full on he's actually sleepwalking through it. But I thought there was a bit more heart in this film. It was a very much a, a sort of uh, Casino Royale-ish sort of feel. Um, but I thought it worked well. I, I was pleased they didn't overburden it. Uh, and I, I really liked everything about it, really. So Mission Impossible Rogue Nation was my ninth favourite film of 2015. Up to my eighth favourite movie which is one of two documentaries in the list, Amy, uh, which is a very strong contender for Best Documentary Oscar, alongside the other one that I'm going to be reviewing. 
Uh, Amy was directed by Asif Kapadia, who did Senna, which was a really acclaimed documentary a few years ago. And the manner in which it's filmed about, um, about the singer Amy Winehouse is quite unique. They actually uh, use home footage of her and footage filmed by her friends throughout virtually the entire movie. There's, uh, I doubt, a single, hardly any scene that isn't them interviewing somebody from her past that's actually shot for the documentary, which gives you amazingly intimate footage of Amy Winehouse. But the other thing about it is you realise how much her songs were about absolutely what was going on in that room, in her head at that moment. And they use a lot of the lyrics and paint them on the screen as you're listening. And you can actually hear her telling the story of her life. Uh, it's very powerful and very sad and heartbreaking, actually. Once things start to go wrong, uh, there's a part earlier in the film where she's very young and they go through all her initial meetings with the record companies and that, and she talks about fame. And she does very matter-of-factly say, I, I don't think I could do it. I think it would actually kill me. It would drive me insane. And then you see the wheels coming off with her marriage with Blake and the uh, massively increasing drug use and the fact that various parasites want to uh, keep the gravy train rolling when a gravy train is about to go off the tracks. Uh, the only slight flaw, and it's not their fault, is that the, ma the best part of the film is the earlier parts where you get most inside her head, where you're talking, listening to her talk in her own words and where she's writing songs about how she feels about these events that are happening in her life, whereas towards the end the songs had dried up and your access to her mind has dried up because she's, you're basically then voyeur looking in. Um, but it's still a fantastic film and one of the best of the year, the uh, father, who doesn't come off very well in it at all. And quite honestly, uh, I don't want to be judgmental, but I think if I just looked at a picture of the guy, I wouldn't trust him. Um, he's allegedly putting together his own film. If you've watched the film, you would probably think he's doing it to make some money rather than clear his name, because he does seem, uh, frankly, a little bit shameless. But it's already the box office record holder for a documentary in the UK. So that's Amy, my eighth favourite film of the year. Now, one of two asides I'm going to do uh, in my countdown today, and that is to look at films this year that I think were underappreciated. So my top five underappreciated films this year, usually rubbish by critics or ignored by audiences. Rubbish by critics at number five. Thank you very much, Kath. I only saw this a couple of days ago. And I still can't get Holiday Road out of my head. It's doing me in. Uh, it's a movie vacation based on the early films, the European vacation and all uh, the um, Chevy Chase starring vehicles, uh, of which there are about four or five. And they used to take the family on a vacation and various madcap things would happen. They've parodied it a, a million times in The Simpsons and other shows as well. Although those films have really loved, I... They're a bit flat and they're a bit PG. Um, they're sort of, they're a bit cloying. And although Chevy Chase is actually a legend and possibly, and Beverly D'Angelo, who played his wife, I believe, in them, they were top-notch quality. They were flat films. They weren't funny all the way through. And they remade it uh, as Vacation this year, and it got terrible reviews, primarily because they keep exactly the same format and they just inject it with vulgar humour. 
Well, who knew that was what it needed? Because the R-rated humour made me laugh out loud and actually papered over the rather uninteresting storyline. Vacation made me laugh as much as any film this year. Don't believe the critics' write-up of it. It is continually hysterically funny. Uh, and I thought that Ed Helms and Christina Applegate were really not good choices for those roles. Christina Applegate's a revelation in her role, uh, taking on the Beverly D'Angelo. And again, have well-spotted Jennifer Aniston as well. Uh, and that's just their road trip to a holiday. There's no story of that hasn't been done a million times. But if most great comedies don't make you laugh as much as you think they did. And this isn't a great film by any shake, but it made me laugh continually every couple of minutes. And there's an epic sequence with uh, Liam or Chris Hemsworth in it, which is worth the price of admission alone. Or um, Christina Applegate doing her drunken assault course which made me cry another film is Everly at number four which stars Selma Hayek age 50 in a knickers for virtually the whole movie and god does she look good uh, she stars in a one room film where she's trapped in a flat and it's verging on torture porn and I'm not really a fan of those movies but if you like a good bloody violent thriller uh, this is much much better than it's being given credit for uh, Hayek completely carries the movie um, there's not much more to say about it it's just one woman being hunted down in her own apartment basically by outside forces and she can hold her own uh, number three a film that was a massive flop lost a lot of money at the box office and I can't quite work out why it's a Jason Statham and I'm a big fan of Jason Statham movie Wildcard which came out at the start of the year it cost about 30 million to make and only took about six at the box office. But if you compare it quality wise with the likes of the Transporter, I actually thought it was much, much better. I thought it was also much better than the uh, Mark Wahlberg film, which it shared a lot of similarities with, called The, uh, the Gambler, which came out last year. It's far better than that, and it's got a broadly similar story. Um, Jason Statham's a private detective in LA, and he, he wants to leave. But every time he gets enough money to leave, he gambles it all away. And then you learn the psycho psychology behind it all. But it's well worth watching. It's got um, a, a pretty decent story. It's well shot. Statham's really good in it. And I just don't understand why it got so panned. It's certainly as good as most of his sort of that level B sort of movie level fare. And number two, I'm a big fan of the Wachowskis. Since they made The Matrix, they've been hammered by critics yeah i think they've made a lot of really interesting movies my movie of the year a few years ago was cloud atlas which i think is incredible flaws and all and they've also made films like speed racer which have got hammered but you're watching it kind of interestingly weird um jupiter ascending was a film that came out this year and got an absolute pasting thankfully it made its near 200 million dollar budget back uh, starring myla kunis the one thing that it's got going for it, it's a sci-fi film and it's very similar to a lot of others where they've got someone on Earth who doesn't know that their um, destiny lay elsewhere in the universe, that they're actually this really important person. But there were a number of things I loved about it. It was very much female-centric. Myla Kunis wasn't a tomboy who beats people up. She was still a woman in this film. And they didn't need to go to the other extreme of having her in combat trousers fighting people. Uh, and the other thing is I love their ideas. I love the idea in Cloud Atlas of a ripple, somebody doing something honourable and it rippling down the ages and inspiring others. And in this film it was a notion of 
what constitutes a person because they're this uh, futuristic colony or whatever they worship her as a queen because she shares the exact DNA template of someone from thousands of years before. And it's kind of like, if you did share the same DNA, are you that same person? I love the uh, thought-provoking uh, parts of it. it. It was deeply flawed. It looked fantastic, like um, virtually everything they've ever done. It was flawed and it was silly at times, but I like Myla Kunis, I like Channing Tatum. Uh, Eddie Redmayne was completely scene-eating. Uh, at times he was just laughable, but I enjoyed Jupiter Ascending. And my number one most underappreciated film of the year probably did the best box office and got the best reviews, but still was regarded as a flop. And given that it's why one of my worst ever film directors, Guy Ritchie, who I cannot stand, uh, the more I ended up watching Snatch and uh, Lockstock, I realised how terrible those films were, but also how bad a director he was. He sort of made films out of episodic chunks that were just thrown together and out of dialogue he thought maybe British Tarantino dialogue would be like this. So I didn't want to watch it and I had no hopes for it but it's the best film I've seen him direct by miles. Uh, he actually directed long sequences that weren't just blood and guts or weren't just people with snappy one-liners but were really cool. Um, and the best thing about it was the, the main three people starring it all worked brilliantly. Alicia Vikander and Army Hammer and Henry Cavill, uh, who was rubbish as Superman in Man of Steel, a terrible film. But they're brilliant in this. They're very charismatic. They're funny. The film has a 60s air about it, but great visuals. It's not overburdened by any of the uh, effects or uh, CGI or anything like that. It just looks really cool. And it hasn't got a massive story, but I just like the characters in it. And it's a character-based study. And he seems uh, Guy Ritchie seems to have lost his... Um, where he makes a film based on one scene and then another and it's very sort of jarring because there's no fluidity to the way he tells stories here I thought he did a wonderful job so I thought it should have done a lot better at the box office Man From Uncle, my most underappreciated film of the year and I didn't get to review it because by the time I'd seen it it was long gone uh, my seventh favourite film of the year was reviewed last week. Joel Egerton, and I've got to stop kissing his backside as I go on and on about how he's the most talented man in Australian cinema, is now not only uh, producing and writing and starring in films, but for the first time directing one. The Gift, which has happily been a massive success, um, it's not a massively original concept. It's the family moving into a new home and gradually being terrorised by this person from their past who happens to be a local who's played by Joel Egerton but it's the way they tra the way that they actually uh, transpire the events is actually feels really really fresh and I put that down to the fact that Joel Egerton's first attempt at directing is spot on he nails it and and the best thing about the film is the direction also Next in line would certainly be the three main characters, the husband and wife. Jason Bateman always seems to get jumped, dumped in these occasionally great, occasionally terrible uh, comedies. But here he gives his best dramatic performance. He's really convincing as a husband, who's a much more complicated character than you're led to believe. Rebecca Hall, up until now, has only ever played uh, girlfriendy English Rosie characters. She was in um, Iron Man 3. Uh, that was probably the most prominent thing she's done. But she's almost unrecognisable here and, and, and given a lot more earth and grit with uh, another complicated character. And Joel Egerton manages to be one of those psychopaths where you always 
wondering whether you should be paying attention to what they're saying or the fact they've got this mad look in their eyes. Uh, it's, it's a great directorial effort. There's some good shocks in it. There's some twisted turns in it as well. Uh, and it was a really, really strong psychological thriller, maybe the year's best psychological thriller, and really bodes well because it did great box office, $5 million budget, over 60 taken at the US box office. So great work. Joel Egerton at number seven of my films of the year with The Gift. Every year I struggle with um, the fact that a lot of the best movies of the year are released due to the Oscars being in February over the Christmas period, so I miss them. And, and then looking back, it's quite hard to sort of say, well, that film was one of my favourites of the year, even though it came out in November in America. But um, this one I did review in January, and Alejandro Inarutu, who developed his own language in cinema with Amoris Peros, are still his uh, best film of that kind, where there's multi-level stories going on. Um, he also did that with 21 Grams and Babel, neither quite as good 21 grams i don't like actually but babel was good and it had uh, strong elements to it but he changed tack completely with birdman a one-shot movie uh, which won a host of oscars including best picture and obviously best cinematography for that swooping camera that never changes throughout the whole film and follows michael keaton's character uh, and i loved most the way it folded in on itself it was uh, about him putting on a stage play in New York and trying to get critical acclaim because he was only ever known as a superhero character in the movies and he wanted to be taken seriously as an actor and he wanted to put on something that was a piece of art and not just a piece and not just a piece of uh, fluff and everything seemed to refer to everything else that was happening Michael Keaton was obviously referring to his past the director was referring to the way that movies are regarded and critics are included and it featured a wonderful turn by Edward Norton the best he's done in years uh, I didn't like Emma Stone I love Emma Stone but I didn't like her in this movie I thought she was a one week link just because her character was so underwritten um, but everything I, I, I really like this film it was very divisive um, Birdman if I haven't already said I'm sure I did but I'm not sure that I actually did say Birdman and a good uh, extra car sack Galifianakos and Naomi Watts show up as well um, it, was, it was stunning to look at it was very dreamlike very hypnotic, and it was a real shame that Michael Keaton couldn't get an Oscar for it because he did brilliant work, his best work that he's done as an actor. So my sixth favourite film of the year was Birdman, which came out um, pretty much last year, but it may have had a January release date in Australia, but I reviewed it then. Anyway, I'm losing my voice. Uh, number five in my movie roundup is a film that I reviewed twice, and maybe the only one I have, I'm not sure, I'm a huge fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, and I've got a great deal of respect for Thomas Pynchon, author of Gravity's Rainbow. He wrote, uh, well, Paul Thomas Anderson, obviously, Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood, maybe the, the best American film of the last 20 years, uh, The Master, uh, just a brilliant filmmaker, um, slightly above for me the likes of David Fincher and um, the English guy whose name has forgot, I've completely forgotten who did um, in. Uh, Inception and The Dark Knight um, he's slightly above artistically all of that wave of directors for me he's got a sort of more poetic sensibility uh, the, the only rivals I think he's got as actual filmmakers I think are the Coen brothers um, it was very interesting that There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men uh, both fought it out at the Oscars at the same time and he made the 
book that uh, is the most recent one from Thomas Pynchon. And Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow is the most verbose, complex and dense novel ever written. It's virtually impenetrable. Uh, and this time around, he made a, a, a much more simplistic private detective story, uh, loosely, broadly around the sort of mould of Chinatown and that kind of very complex storytelling in inherent vice. And it didn't get great reviews. And when I watched it, I was deeply, deeply, deeply disappointed. I loved the director. I loved the star whacking Phoenix. Uh, I loved most of the people in the movie as well. But I watched it and I think I gave it six and a half out of ten or six out of ten because the story itself was so complex and unsatisfying. But then I watched it a week later and I knew the story already. I knew that the story wasn't going to have a, a massive amount of satisfaction, that it was going to be very convoluted. And I stopped watching it for the story and started watching it for the individual scenes. And then I was absolutely blown away. It's a kind of, it's out of all the films on the list, it is guaranteed to be a future cult film, which is interesting because other than Chinatown, a film it remembers, uh, resembles the most is The Big Lebowski, which wasn't well received by critics at all on release and is now a much beloved film. Uh, this one's got a harder edge than that, um, but it is uh, often very, very funny. Whacking Phoenix is a is a kind of detective who um, goes around LA trying to decipher this impenetrably complex labyrinth plot. Um, other people in it really interesting. Josh Brolin, I love. Uh, he's magnificent. So there was a lot of talk about him getting a Best Supporting Actor for his role as a belligerent but somehow charming L.A. policeman. Um, it's also got uh, Owen Wilson. Catherine Waterstone's very, very good as the estranged girlfriend of Joaquin Phoenix in this. Reese Witherspoon turns up. Not to much effect. Benicio Del Toro turns up. And also um, Joanna Newsom. Uh, the recording artist, who I've not really played much on this show, but a very acclaimed recording artist, does a narrative voiceover throughout. It's stylistically superb. The story I don't particularly go for. It's, it's, it's almost like one of those big sleep kind of films where you're watching the characters rather than paying attention to the, the wild machinations of this story and trying to keep up with what's going on. Uh, Whacking Phoenix is always good. Really, really great actor. Uh, alongside Jake Gyllenhaal is one of the, the best of that wave of actors for me. And it's just stylistically really good. It's really funny. It's got a lot of cool music in it, including Neil Young songs. It opens with a Can song, which I'm a massive Can fan. And it's a much better film that's been given credit for, and I do genuinely believe going forward it will be regarded as a really great film. So Inherent Vice is my fifth favourite film of the year, uh, uh, one of the earliest reviews of the year as well. Uh, a number, and it, I think one thing that this year has been defined about, like, well, two things uh, movie-wise, there haven't really been any classics this year. There's not been that much in the way that you'd say was really great. More like that was a very good film, not that amazingly great. And the other thing is massive big blockbuster franchises failing massively and delivering terrible, terrible movies. Uh, not at number 10 in my worst films, Big Game. Uh, it's made by Jamari Helander and it's a Finnish director and it's the most expensive film ever made in Finland called Big Game. Virtually no one saw it. Um, it had Samuel L. Jackson as a, a sort of ring-in uh, and, and Jim Broadbent, an excellent British actor in it as well. But if you want to know how silly this film is, it starts with a young boy whose dad doesn't think he's tough enough 
and they live in the mountains in Finland, very beautiful look to look at. And he has to go out for three days and kill himself uh, a big steer to prove that he's a man. On the way, Samuel L. Jackson is flying high above them in Air Force One as he's president of the United States. And their plane shot down as Samuel L. Jackson lands in a capsule in the middle of the forest and spends the next few days being protected from villains by this boy. It is unbelievably stupid. It's so silly. I think there was the silliest sequence I've seen this year is Samuel L. Jackson gets put into um, like a cage underneath a helicopter, swinging from this helicopter by the bad guys who try and kidnap him. So there's this long sequence where this cage is quite clearly going along about four or five feet above the ground. <laughs> and you just think, get out. Why aren't you just getting out? It's so low down you could probably step. It was a rubbish film. At number nine... Uh, first of the terrible blockbusters this year, Jurassic World, uh, which I found to be absolutely atrocious. Um, they weren't the best franchise. The first film was really good. The second one wasn't. The third one was terrible. So it doesn't have a high track record. But the thing that really got me about Jurassic World is how much they remade the original with no imagination. Instead of Sam Neill's character being, you know, this uh, dedicated sciencey person who's got two nephews or nieces nephew and a niece coming to stay with him who he can't relate to because he's got no human identity they do the exact same thing there's a female scientist she can't relate to children and her, ne her nephews come to stay with her at jurassic world the theme park and it even has the same thing down to velociraptors down to the main t-rex everything is done the same there's no imagination the script's leaden the acting is pretty poor chris pratt i love why he was in this i don't know because it's the first foot he's put wrong but it wasn't his fault everything about the film is dire and i never found myself enthralled like the special effects in the first film i imagine were magical i remember being they were magical it was a big event it was the first big film to have cgi and the effects in this are just so not interesting you don't remember anything that happens at number eight uh, I didn't like the first Taken film. I'm a big Liam Neeson fan, but I thought Taken was rubbish. Compared to Taken 3, that was Citizen Kane. Taken 3 is absolutely terrible. Luke Besson produced it. Oliver Megaton directed it. Forrest Whitaker, who's uh, a normal, a very good barometer of terrible in a lot of films, I think. Frankie Jansen uh, is a beautiful woman, but uh, just given her nothing here. Um, she's from the X-Men, uh, the original X-Men movies. And it's, it's, it's like someone remade the first film and tried as hard in every direction to make it more anonymous, more derivative, more tedious, more ridiculous action sequences. Uh, Taken 3 was terrible. Another massive big blockbuster franchise disaster was Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, the Marvel comic franchise was once a reliable barometer of quality the original Iron Man movies, even the first Thor and Captain America movies, and the first Avenger movie as a collective was excellent. And then they followed that up with the brilliant Winter Soldier. And since then, it's just been a real downward spiral. I wasn't a fan of Iron Man 3. Thor 2 was dreadful. It was just awful. And I thought Avengers Age of Ultron was awful too. Everyone in the first Avengers film had a purpose. All those different characters had a storyline and a reason to be. In this, none of them really did. They, Thor just hangs around for the entire movie. Uh, and it, it just doesn't have 
any narrative heft to it. It's an interesting concept with the villain, uh, who who could have been really, really good, but he isn't. He's um, Ultron himself is just a bit bland, and the denouement is the typical forty-five minute laser spectacular. But the movie goes nowhere. None of the characters are interesting. It's got to the point where you have to go to Jeremy Renner's house to hang out. That's how bad things have got. And number six, a film that possibly came out last year, but I reviewed this year, Exodus, Gods and Kings. I've spoken at length about how I'm not a massive fan of Ridley Scott. And I think he screws up a lot of movies. He does so here massively. It's terrible. Christian Bale, I love. Joel Egerton, I love. Edgerton, I think I've called him Egerton every time, Edgerton, John Turturro's excellent, Aaron Paul, Ben Mendelsohn, Sigourney Weaver, Ben Kingsley, what a great cast, what a great story, Noah, one of the most cinematic stories of the Bible. But this is just terrible, it's trite, it's embarrassing, it's try-hard, uh, some really arresting visual sequences, but a mess, and it's got that B-grade feel about it as well. Number five in my worst films of the year is The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. I thought the first, I'm a big fan of Jennifer Lawrence. I raved about Winter's Bone when it first came out on this show, saying that it deserved Best Picture Oscar, she deserved Best Actress. Uh, John, I can't remember his name now, deserved Best Supporting Actress. Um, and the second film was a bit of a mess. It was just all over the shop, but it was still a hell of a lot better than the third one, Mockingjay Part 1, which was dire. Um, the I get the impression you could watch uh, one and two and then bypass three and watch four and not really notice. It's like as we've it's one of these shames of the modern age is when they get to the final novel or the final instalment, they have to split it into multiple parts. We had it with the dire Twilight Twilight films, Harry Potter. Uh, Peter Jackson went hell for leather and did three movies out of a very slim novel to no effect whatsoever in the Hobbit trilogy. And they've done it with The Hunger Games, splitting the first, uh, the final book, Mockingjay, into two parts. But it feels like they've taken the first 10 minutes out of the book to make this story with. Nothing really works. Nothing makes sense. It's all repetitive. It's all drivel. Um, but the thing that really annoyed me was this is like a $200 million movie. Did could they not get someone to write a script? It's like someone's put holding lines in. It's all exposition. It's all it's all very sort of trite dialogue backwards and forwards. Um, I thought it was dreadful. Apparently the second half is better, but uh, that's my fifth worst film of the year. Number four, Neil Blomkamp, How the Mighty Have Fallen. His film District 9 was revered. Uh, a great prescient refugee story set in South Africa in science fiction terms. And the second film, Elysium, I thought was underrated. I do like Matt Damon. And I thought it was actually a good film, but it was flawed and it wasn't that good. His third film, Chappie, about a robot that is part of the police force and then gets taken over by villains, is just quite spectacularly awful. Uh, the acting in it is amongst the worst I've ever seen. It's got Dev Patel in it, and he's terrible, but he's probably the, one of the best ones in it. The only reliable source here is Hugh Jackman. He actually maintains credibility in this film. It's set in South Africa again, and it's got uh, two members of the band, Diane Antwold, the female member of the band that stars in it, is possibly the worst actress I've ever seen. And it's a stupid, stupid story, a stupid film. I don't know what he was thinking. It did well at the box office, bizarrely. Number three, one of two films, perhaps the only two films I've ever given zero out of ten to. 
And that is from the director Brad Bird, who's previously been excellent at helming very big budget movies. Well, this I was really sad about because it's very rare in Hollywood for original concept movies to get made with big budgets. Everything is from a book, from a comic, a sequel, from a franchise. Everything is established. And Tomorrowland was an original concept. Uh, the story itself is, is another one of those where someone on Earth ends up having all these sort of powers or you know, they're royalty in another universe, or stuff like that. Uh, and this time George Clooney is perhaps the most charmless he's been in a role and the most anonymous and the most uh, in, aggravating. Hugh Laurie turns up in this to no effect whatsoever. Uh, Britt Robertson's a kid in it, and that's uh, he's about as annoying as Anakin Skywalker, the kid that played him in The Phantom Menace. But it, I gave it zero, and in the same reason I gave the other film zero, which will come up in a little bit, because nothing works. There was very little enjoyment in any direction. I didn't like the CGI and everything that got ra- that was one of the only things that got raved about. The story is, is complete mess. Like the tone changes every other scene. You constantly lose track of what's going on, which is made harder by the fact that there's no dramatic imperative to continue watching. And just like the other film I'm going to mention, it limps to an end that's terrible and then sort of smiles and looks at you and goes, are you ready for the sequel? And you're like, no, I'm not ready for the sequel. This is terrible. So number three, worst film of the year, Tomorrowland. Number two, Entourage, the movie. If you're a fan of the movie on uh, TV series Entourage, <coughs> starring Adam Grenier as a, a, as a beautiful-looking male actor who becomes a celebrity in Hollywood and uses that to parade his friends Kevin Connolly, Kevin Dillon and Jerry Ferrara around whilst their uh, obnoxious manager and star of the show, Jeremy Piven, is their lawyer, or agent, sorry. Uh, that film was known and became loved for being funny, for being irreverent, and most of all for the fact that those four men were each other's friends and looked after each other and, and at the core of the, the story was their friendship and that's why it worked. This is like when they made the Sex in the City movies. Instead of these four people being just ordinary guys or three of them ordinary guys hanging around their rich, successful friend um, and going to parties and, and trying to score model girlfriends and all the rest, this time around all of them are super successful. Like one of them who was the biggest dropkick uh, out of the lot of them is suddenly worth tens of millions of dollars and has Ronda Rousey chasing him for a date. And he's already going out of a model. It's, it's like they all sat down and had their wish lists and just made the film. It's not funny, hasn't got a story, it's totally incredulous. There's no way that... Adam Grenier is not a good actor, but there's no way that you believe that movie studios would give his character con- complete control over a $200 million movie. You're just looking going, this would never, ever happen. So it was a terrible film, and it was also kind of uh, aggravating to watch. My number one worst film of the year, just replay what I said about Tomorrowland. Fantastic Four, another film I gave zero out of ten to. Nothing at all works about it. It's a very difficult film to watch because the story is so inept that you can't quite keep track of it, even though not much happens. It's um, very episodic, but the episodes don't knit together in any way. The story is very lame. It's, it's actually an interesting premise, but once it gets going, it's it feels like lots of different people had input into what the story would be. 
Uh, it's a terrible film on every level, from dialogue to acting. The Fantastic Four themselves are rubbish, apart from Miles Teller from Whiplash, who is, is always going to be good, but he's given nothing to be good with. The other three members of the Fantastic Four are atrocious, and they even managed to make the female Fantastic Four character a bit girly. So it, it gets to the end, eventually, after what seems like four and a half hours, and it has a terrible denouement and finish, and they actually do the thing again where they all sit there, all four of them look at the camera and go, we'll be back as the Fantastic Four, and you think you haven't earned it. Um, anyway, that's my worst film of the year. The last three, Tomorrowland and Entourage and Fantastic Four, my number one worst film of 2015, could all have equally been that film. My number four film of the year is my favourite documentary of the year, Cartel Land, an astonishing piece of work by Matthew Heinemann, and maybe it will be Amy at the Oscars, I don't know, but it's um, possibly the best action and cinematography I saw all year. Um, it's an incredible story that's dovetailed between two vigilante gangs, one on the Mexican border, which are American vigilantes trying to stop at first, illegal immigrants coming through uh, undocumented into America. They hide out in the hills and they basically round these people up with combat weaponry. And the other side is this guy who goes around... Um, Dr. Jose Morella is a hero, a true hero. He forms a militia in his town. I think are they in the Sinaloa cartel region. Somewhere around there, and basically these pe it, the, the documentary opens with um, a lot of dead bodies on the floor, a lot of them babies. And basically what happened is there's a small plantation. The owner hadn't had enough money to pay protection money to the cartel, so they came in at night and butchered 11 members of the same family and threw them in a well. And basically this guy has got together with other people, picked up guns and gone kicking doors in in these small towns trying to find these people who are part of the cartels. The story of both men is incredible, but Morella's, Morella's story is just jaw-dropping and, by the end, bitterly disappointing. Not because of him. Even though he does a few things along the way, he's still a hero. But because everyone else that joins up with these militias ends up being sort of assimilated into the power structures that are already there of the cartels and of the government. But what you see is amazing. There's a scene where they go through a town and they're going after these uh, people uh, who are part of the cartels and then they end up uh, getting surrounded by the military and having their guns taken off of them and the, the local townspeople end up fighting the military and giving them and the military end up giving the guns back and it's all filmed real time. Uh, and there are other sequences in it where they're picking up cartel members and viciously beating them and torturing them and you don't normally see that kind of thing on TV. And because you're told what these people have done, killing people in the most horrific manner, you kind of, your moral compass is constantly fluctuating. There's no due process. You don't know if these people are paying back, dividend, uh, paying back uh, for you know some other tiff that they're having, but a lot of the time they're screaming at these cartel members, Where am I? where's my sister, where's my brother, where's my dad? And you kind of are on board with them, but... It's the most stunningly shot documentary. It, it should be up for best cinematography. It looks like, oh, it's almost like Apocalypse Now level standard cinematography. The, the dra drama 
the way they shoot the drama with the actual real fighting going on is incredible. How they got so embedded, they must have been in danger an awful lot of times. And the politics behind it is just devastating and depressing. It's a really interesting look at the Mexican drug war and the story of Morelos deserves telling because he's a legendary man. And guess who's the only person currently in jail out of a lot of them? That's right, him, the guy that actually formulated these militias against the drug cartels ended up being arrested and put in jail, whilst the people that are in the drug cartels ended up owning the militias. Amazing film, Cartel Land. My number three movie of the year, and counting down my favourites of the year, on the brown note with Julian, is Mad Max Fury Road by George Miller. The Australian director who's had enormous success over his career, ranging from the original Mad Max movies to the likes of Happy Feet at the other end of the scale, uh, came back with a movie that people weren't really sure whether they wanted or what they were going to get. Um, and what they got was very surprisingly good. Um, it follows loosely the same sort of format as Mad Max 2, where it's an endless chase. But everything else about it is actually complex and has a lot of uh, subtlety to it. Um, it's got Tom Hardy as Max, and he's probably the only weak link in the whole movie because... His character is given nothing to do and no agency. He hasn't really got a storyline. He's kind of like sits along for the ride. So it's a waste because Tom Hardy is one of my favourite actors. But elsewhere, Charlize Theron is excellent, which is great because the film I reviewed of her last week was terrible. Um, I can't remember. Dark Places was awful. She was terrible in it as well. She's really good in this as a kind of one-armed sort of getaway bandit. And Nicholas Holt has never been better. He's got probably the most interesting character. As one of the baddies, but someone that's dying with cancer and has been manipulated into thinking he's going to Valhalla if he takes out somebody on behalf of his uh, boss, but um, gradually sort of warms to the other side as well. It's a shame that his character was killed off because uh, his character, I thought, was the strongest. Uh, Zoe Kravitz turns up. Uh, Rose Huntington Whiteley turns up and it's just it's got a very good motivation for a lot of the main characters in it and it's got a bit of soul to it as well because even the villains kind of have this view of the world and Valhalla and you know dying honorably and all of this kind of thing that you kind of can sort of relate to their their hopeless existence in this post-apocalyptic world by pinning themselves to these uh pseudo religions sort of pre-religions even though you know they've gone past the religions we have now you can sort of see how these things well up visually it's probably the best film of the year there's stunning sequences that are artistic and the color schemes are stunning the action is fantastic it's organic action rather than cgi action stories thrilling and just a really really good film so well done to uh, george miller uh, whether there will be a sequel or not, I don't know, because even though it did over 380 at the box office million, uh, it actually cost close to that after marketing to put out. So I hope they do, because it was one of the most intelligent blockbuster films of recent times. My number two film of the year is Sicario. Dennis Villeneuve has gone straight to the top of the directors in my book. Uh, his film Incendries was brilliant up until the end and then was uh, shot itself down in flames. But Prisoner, the one with Hugh Jackman in it, uh, whose children get uh, kidnapped by a pedophile, is, is a really stunning, gritty thriller. And uh, Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal was magnificent. And it is really surprising to see him come into this widescreen action film that was like um, a cross between, say, Traffic and Zero Dark Thirty seems about the perfect balance. Um, 
And it was a beautifully shot film, a very exciting film. It had a lot of intelligence with regards to how the American drug war is going in Mexico. A, lot, a few flaws here and there narrative-wise, but it was so thrilling and exciting. Emily Blunt was wonderful as the heroine in it, a DEA agent or the, the local police agent in it. Benicio Del Toro may well get nominated for an Oscar for his soulful yet malevolent character in it. And Josh Brolin, I think, is wonderful in everything. And he plays a another laconic cop who basically won't adhere to any norms of morality whatsoever. In Zero Dark Thirty, they, they care about waterboarding people. Here they don't. They just don't care at all. It's a good story. And Dennis Villeneuve shows in a number of sequences that he can handle a big widescreen epic very, very well. The bit where they go through the tunnels at the end is visually stunning. And there's a sequence where they go into Ciudad Juarez, which is one of the murder capitals of the world. And they actually uh, follow you from a helicopter going in, getting into these cars that go in a convoy to pick up one of the cartel bosses. And then back through the American border. It's breathtaking. One of the best sequences I've seen all year. Uh, the uh, characters don't really develop, but the the acting is very good, which is a is a plus. Uh, the soundtrack is superb. Uh, I was just going to see if I could see who did the. Uh, no, it hasn't got it on there. Uh, the music. Oh, jo- Johan Johansson. It's a really good soundtrack. Stunning visually. Uh, great acting. Great action, and an intelligent and thoughtful thriller. So Sicario is my second best film of the year. Uh, Ten, it follows. Nine, Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible. Amy, the documentary at eight. The Gift, Joel Egerton at seven. Birdman at six. Inherent Vice at five. Cartel Land at four. Uh, Mad Max at three. Sicario at two. And my number one film of the year is a c- cartoon. Inside Out, the latest from Pixar, following from a few years of them going from the artistic triumphs of Wally and Up to Cars 3 and dreadful stuff and the magic had worn off the, the studio. But the director of, I think, Wally or Up, one of those two, uh, Pete Doctor, returned with a film that was as soulful and moving and poetic and beautiful as anything I saw this year uh, about his daughter when she started growing up at school, becoming more sullen and withdrawn, not the playful child she'd known. He spent years working on the different aspects of people's psychologies and created this living universe inside her head where there was joy and there was sadness, anger and so on. And there are these two worlds colliding throughout the movie. And its most poignant realisation is the whole notion that Happiness comes in and tries to stop everyone else having any say over what how the child is feeling to the point where it actually breaks the child down. And Sadness, one of the best characters I think I've seen in, in a cartoon ever, in an animation film ever, uh, is, a, is a really moving character. And, and she has to sort of come to the fore to allow yourself to feel sad. It's stunning to look at. It's brilliantly voiced by people like Amy Poehler and Bill Hader. Um, but most of all, it's just very soulful and unexpectedly moving. By the end, it's actually hard not to shed tears when you're watching it. It's a beautiful film, the best film that Pixar have made since Wally or Up. And I, I think it's an outside bet for Best Picture Oscar as well. It's probably a bit too obvious, but it's going to win Best Animated Picture Oscar. So my number one film of 2015 is Pixar's Inside Out, a wonderful movie. I know that was a rush at the end, but I wanted to play as much of this as possible. Paul Butterfield Blues Band. I love the guitarist Mike Bloomfield. Only re-